Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming, joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church today. We are so glad that you are here. I want to add one little thing to something that Ted mentioned earlier, and that is about our upcoming centennial celebration that we will have here at 5 p.m. on the 30th of this month. And uh, all of those things he mentioned are there. We've got some guests, other guests that are coming, and um, uh, we want to. We're going to have some uh, time after it. We're going to have some uh, refreshments after that service is over with. But there's one thing that I want to highlight, and that is, you know, there's just an awful lot of talent that's up here on this stage with our choir and with our orchestra, and uh, we uh, we are spoiled by that week after week. And uh, but you're going to get spoiled again that night because there has been an anthem that has been written and commissioned for Ivy Creek Baptist Church's centennial celebration that will be uh, sung and, and, and given as an offering for us that night. And so we are excited about that. We're excited about it. I haven't even snuck over here and listened to them practicing. So it's going to be for the very first time it will be sung that evening. And so I'm excited about that. So you'll want to come back for that as well. Uh, it is good to have you here this morning. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you please take them out and turn with me once again and for the final time during this series to the Gospel of Mark and to chapter 16. If you are with us for the very first time today, uh, you should know that we as a church family here at Ivy Creek have been journeying through uh, an expositional study of the Gospel of Mark uh, since, well, a long time. And... Uh, as a matter of fact, I put some stats together for you just so that we can sort of look back over where we've come from and when we started. The first sermon in Mark's Gospel I preached here on January the 22nd of 2017. So uh, it's been a while since we first began our study in Mark's Gospel. And by my count, this will be sermon number 64 in that series. And we've taken a few breaks along the way for various things and at various points, but 64 sermons through the Gospel of Mark. And in addition to that, uh, I went back and looked at, at my, uh, my notes, and I have, I believe, 37 Wednesday night Bible studies that serve as either preludes or follow-ups to the 64 sermons on Sunday morning. And so if you add all those together, I'm not good at math, but I think that adds up to being about 101 different studies through the Gospel of Mark over the course of 87 weeks. And some of you are thinking, wow, how can you really get that much out of 16 chapters in a book? And then others of you are just glad that Mark's going to be in our rearview mirror, and I completely understand that. But for me, honestly, it is just one of those things that, quite frankly, this week as I was pondering and just kind of thinking back, I thought... You know, there was so much more that could have been said. There's just so much more that maybe should have been said that even I did. And, and, and for me, it's a little bit of a, it's a bittersweet time because it's like I'm saying goodbye to a friend that, quite frankly, just about every single day of my life over the last year and a half, this friend has been walking alongside with me and has been in my thoughts and I've been ruminating over the words that I would say to you and the things and the concepts that Mark has written. And so for me, it's a, it's a little bit of a challenging time to realize that we have come to the end of this study, but nevertheless, this morning we do. And we come to the final verses of chapter 16. And as we do, I want to reiterate some things to you that I brought to your attention last week if you were with us. And that is, many of you will notice as we get to verses 9 through 20, of Mark 16, you will see that some of those, those verses in some of your Bibles are bracketed, or you will see a footnote 
that will direct you to a statement somewhere on, on the page that says that verses 9 through 20 do not appear in the earliest manuscripts that we have of Mark's gospel. And here's what you should know. As the church, the, the church itself does not possess the original autograph of Mark's gospel. In other words, it does not possess the original that Mark wrote the gospel down onto. All we have are copies that have been made from that original. That's all that continues to exist. And those oldest copies that we have in our possession end at verse 8. You will not find verses 9 through 20 in those oldest copies. In addition to that, as I mentioned last week, some of the oldest in, in Christian scholars and theologians, some that date back to the second and the third centuries, in their writings, they do not contain any commentary on verses 9 through 20 of Mark's gospel. These are, among other details, are referred to as the external evidences of the fact that verses 9 through 20 were a later addition to Mark's gospel. They were brought in at a later time. Furthermore, when, we, when considering the writing style that you encounter when you move from verse 8 into the final verses of this chapter, you will note some other differences, especially in the Greek, particularly in word choices and in sentence structure, but also in the, the abrupt change of the narrative flow. It, it is it's completely unlike how Mark wrote the first 16 chapters. And scholars consider this to be internal evidences that what we have in verses 9 through 20 are a, an addition to the, that gospel as it was originally penned by Mark. And then if we consider verse 8, which we did last week, and that is, verse 8 tells us that the women who had encountered the angel in the empty tomb and that the, the angel had commissioned them to go and to tell the, the message that he had risen to the disciples, but instead we learn there that they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, trembling and amazed, and that they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Well, what we, what we note is that that is such an abrupt ending to this gospel that many have said verses 9 through 20 were added later in order to give us an account of, of Jesus' appearance, resurrection appearance to his disciples and, and to tell us about uh, the commission, the gospel commission that he gave and also about the ascension. In fact, all of these things are testified to in other parts of the New Testament. Everything that we're going to read about this morning is, is given testimony to in other parts of the New Testament. In fact, R.C. Sproul has written that what we have in the final verses is what the apostles recalled and what the other gospel writers had said. And consequently, when, when we come to these verses, there's a choice that has to be made. And many you will find will, will, will stop and will not consider verses 9 through 20. Uh, they stop with verse 8 because they believe that, and as I do, that that's where Mark originally ended. But I also, as I mentioned last week, am convicted and convinced of the sovereignty of God. And that God himself has preserved his word. And that he who, who was not only responsible for inspiring and, 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 and causing Mark to write the words he did, also allowed these other verses to come along later as a way of being able to instruct us as well. And so I have chosen to actually deal with these verses this morning as our final sermon. And I have included the, the title for today's sermon just simply as a postscript to Mark's gospel because I believe that's what it is. But I believe that there are some very instructive things that we as the church can continue to learn from these verses. And so that is why we were going to deal with them this morning. And I'm going to read them for you, beginning in verse 9 all the way down through verse 20. 
hear the word of God this morning that says this. Now, when he arose on the first day of the week, that is Jesus, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. And they will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this opportunity we have to be able to come to this place to be able to read your word and to study it for ourselves and then, Lord, to allow you to, to transform our lives. And I pray that that would be what would happen today. That in our study of your word, that your Holy Spirit might give us, give, our, give sight to our blind eyes, give hope to our hardened hearts, and bring about faith in us that radically transforms us by the power of the gospel. This is my prayer, and I pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen. This, this postscript of Mark's gospel is, I believe, constructed around two key themes. Themes that continue to, to, to show up in these verses. The first is the theme of Jesus' disciples being called out from their unbelief to belief. That's the first theme that I think we see here. The second one is, I believe, the hope that Jesus' resurrection and his resulting power gives to those who do believe. So those two things, belief and hope, those are the two themes that emerge from what we read and what I have described as, as summary statements. And that's exactly what I believe verses 9 through 20 are. I believe they were added as summary statements of more in-depth coverings of the same issues in other parts of the New Testament. And I hope to be able to demonstrate that to you this morning. And I'm just going to give us a few headings that will help us hang our thoughts on today. And the first heading simply is this, appearances. Appearances. There are three different appearances of the resurrected Jesus that are summarized in these verses. The first one is an appearance that Jesus made to Mary Magdalene, which is recorded for us there in verse 9. The author further identifies Mary as the one out of whom Jesus had cast seven demons, which is really the description that parallels what Luke has already told us about Mary Magdalene back in Luke chapter 8. 
He describes for us a, a group of women that were following Jesus at that point and had followed him all throughout Galilee. And among those who were following him, he identifies Mary Magdalene, who he says, out of whom had come seven demons. Jesus had, had met her and he had exorcised her of those seven demons. Here the writer just confirms that this same Mary Magdalene is the one to whom Jesus first appears. And it is interesting and it's significant to note that it is her that Jesus appears to first. We're not given all of the details surrounding this appearance of Jesus to Mary Magdalene. It's just a summary statement that the writer gives us here. But the details of that can be found in John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, we learned that Mary Magdalene was the one who, among other women, went to the tomb on that Sunday after the Sabbath was over in order to find Jesus' body, to anoint him, to give her pay her last respects. But when she got there, she found the stone had been rolled away from the empty tomb. And in her dismay and her alarm, she immediately ran back to the disciples. She knew where they were. And she told them, they have taken the body of our Lord and I do not know where they have laid it. And it was at that point that John tells us that both he and Peter were greatly alarmed by her testimony and that they jumped up and ran to the tomb themselves to investigate things themselves. And when they got there, they found the, the tomb empty and they did not know how to process the information. And so they went back to where they were with the disciples. But in the meantime, Mary Magdalene had come again to the tomb and she stood there weeping. The Bible says that Jesus appeared to her and, and to her, he seemed as the gardener who was there in the garden would have been tending things. She did not recognize the resurrected Christ, but when he spoke her name, Mary, suddenly she was able to identify and recognize that it was her Lord. And John tells us that she grabbed on to him and Jesus says, look, you can't hold on to me now. You must go, and she wounds up going back to the disciples for a second time and saying, I have seen the Lord. But notice what, what Mark, Mark's gospel here reveals to us. In verse 11, it says to us that when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. See, in other words, the disciples had an eyewitness right there in front of them. Mary Magdalene, who had seen the Lord, conversed with him, and yet the disciples refused to believe her. That's the first summary. We move to the next one in verses 12 and 13. And the second appearance of the resurrected Lord is to a couple of men as they walked and went into the country, the writer says. In Luke's gospel, chapter 24, we have a much longer version of this summary. There we find that that there were two disciples, one named Cleopas and the other is unnamed, but they are walking a seven-mile trek downhill from, G from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus. And when they get there, they are, or as they are on the road, they are dejected, they are saddened. Luke tells us that Jesus comes up on them. He overtakes them on their walk. And as he comes up to them, they do not recognize that it is Jesus. And he asks them a question, why are you so sad? And they look at him like he's crazy. They can't believe that he would ask such a question. And ask, hey, do you, are you the only person in the town of Jerusalem that doesn't know what's gone on in the last few days? And as I mentioned in my Wednesday night Bible study, the fact of the matter was, he was the only one in Jerusalem who really did know everything that had gone on in the last few days. But as he began to converse with them, he says, why are you sad? And they said, look, Jesus of Nazareth, the one 
whom we had hoped would redeem Israel, he's been crucified and he's been buried. And, and there's been some women that's gone to his tomb and they found it empty and evidently even some angels had said that he had risen from the dead, but we just can't understand that. And we, They're so enveloped in their unbelief that grief has overtaken them. Luke tells us then in verses 25 and 27, through 27 that Jesus says this, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke's account of the resurrected Lord's appearance to these two disciples ends then with, with Jesus going to their home. And as he begins to break bread with them in the home, suddenly, Luke says, their eyes were opened and they knew him. And, and Luke says, he vanished from their sight. How would you like that? You finally realize who Jesus is after all this time. And as soon as you make that recognition, he vanishes from your sight. We don't know exactly where he went, but we do know what the two disciples did. They ran, they ran seven miles back uphill to Jerusalem to the disciples to tell them what they had experienced. And then as the writer here in verse 13 of Mark 16 tells us though, the other disciples still didn't believe them. You have another example of eyewitnesses testifying to the disciples they had seen the Lord and another example of the, of the disciples refusing to believe those eyewitnesses. The final vignette, the summary for us there is of Jesus who appears then to the 11. According to verse 14, he appears to them as they sat at the table. And so far what we've noticed is that these disciples have refused to believe the testimonies of others who had encountered the risen Lord. But now the resurrected Christ appears to them directly. And as he does that, he, he brings a rebuke to them because of their unbelief and because of their hardness of heart. Back in, in Luke 24, again, we mentioned that Jesus vanished once he had appeared before, finally been recognized by the two disciples there. Well, we know that later that same day, he appeared to all of those disciples as they were in a locked room. Suddenly he was there. All of them were there except for one named Thomas. Thomas was not there that day. Yet Jesus appeared to them. And, and, and what, we, what Luke goes on to say is that all the disciples went and testified to Thomas and said, look, the resurrected Christ has appeared to us. And do you remember what Thomas said? Thomas said this, unless I see his hand, unless I put my finger in the prints of his hands, unless, unless I touch him in his side where he had been speared, I will not believe. The Bible says eight days later, they were all in a room together, all the disciples this time. And Jesus appeared to them. And Jesus went up to Thomas and said, you want to see me, huh? Look at my hand. Touch my side. And then he says this to Thomas. He says, do not be unbelieving, but believing. Do you hear the rebuke in those words? Ray Sedman has pointed out that we should not fail to understand what a climate of persistent and stubborn unbelief prevailed among these disciples after the resurrection. 
All of them found it difficult to accept this amazing fact that the one who had been crucified was now risen and living among them again. The significant thing here, he writes, is that Jesus himself expected the eleven to believe before they saw it. And he wanted and expected them to believe the reports of the eyewitnesses who had seen him. But they didn't. They absolutely refused to believe the witnesses that were placed before them. And I believe that Jesus' command to no longer be unbelieving but believing is a very important command. The rebuke that he gives is important because of the next thing that the text reveals to us. Notice the next point on your outline this morning, and it's this. It's the gospel commission. It's the gospel commission. Jesus says to them, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Most scholars point to verse 15 as being really a shorter version of the Great Commission that was recorded for us in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. And it is a command to move out of Jerusalem. It's a command to move out of Palestine. It's a command to move into the rest of the world. And as you are going, you are proclaiming, you are preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, that he was, he was crucified for our sins, that he was buried, but that he rose again for our justification. That is the good news of the gospel. And notice what that preaching of the good news of the gospel necessitates in the hearers. It necessitates belief. Notice, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. Now, I should point out to you that there are some who have used this verse as, as proof that baptism is necessary for salvation. And, and they say it, look, just, just a, a straightforward reading. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But I want you to notice that the condemnation that Jesus passes in the second half of this verse, the condemnation which is the opposite of salvation, notice where that condemnation comes from. It simply says this, he who does not believe will be condemned. In other words, the condemnation is the opposite of salvation. And the key issue that hangs on that is whether one believes or one does not believe. You do not find baptism in the second half of this verse. So consequently, the only condition that hangs upon either being saved or being condemned is the issue of belief. So why, why does Jesus mention baptism here? Well, some have said that that rather than this being a reference to water baptism, which we may immediately assume, that instead Jesus here is referring to the fact that when we are saved, we are baptized into the Spirit. In other words, the gift of the Holy Spirit is, is for all who believe. And that gift is given to us. And, and that, that, is, that is one possibility. But another is that by mentioning baptism here, and, and by this I mean water baptism, taking it from that perspective, then Jesus is perhaps making the point that belief in the gospel ought to be something that is real. And, and the reality of that inward belief then ought to be demonstrated by the outward action of water baptism. I mean, after all, only the belief that actually 
changes us and, and makes us act in obedience is real belief. And, and one way that real belief and real obedience is demonstrated is by being baptized. Regardless of which way you go with that, what, what we have to understand is that the pairing must be considered that belief in the gospel is what saves, while unbelief is what condemns. Now what I want you to do is consider the ramifications of this, this gospel commission because you see, the disciples who had been so slow to believe the testimonies of the eyewitnesses who had come back and said they had seen and encountered the risen Christ, they were the very ones who were now going to be commissioned to go out into all the world and carry the gospel message of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And so the tables were really being turned on them. You see, they were the ones who were now going to be testifying of the validity of the resurrected Christ and their testimonies would wind up being met by unbelief with the rest of the world. So from their own perspective, these disciples knew how challenging it had been for them to, to believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead, but, but Jesus had literally and physically appeared to them. Now he was sending them out into the rest of the world. And as he did, they were taking the message of, of his death, burial, and resurrection, which, by the way... If you don't have the resurrection, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. Your faith is worthless, he says. You are still in your sin. So they are actually telling people there was a man who was alive and he was dead and that the power of God has raised him back from the dead and they are commissioned to take that good news out to the world. But think about this. If... If you were one of those disciples and you had had difficulty believing it, even though you had encountered it firsthand, how in the world would you think that you were going to be able to convince a lost and unbelieving world who had never walked with Jesus and had never encountered it? Well, that's where we come to the next point on your outline this morning. The third point this morning is simply this, accompanying signs. Accompanying signs. In verses 17 and 18, Jesus goes on to mention some specific supernatural signs that would accompany the proclamation of the gospel by these disciples as they went out into the world. Now remember, the setting for these signs was, was really a climate of unbelief. Therefore, these disciples would need encouragement to continue their, their faithful proclamation in the, in the face of such unbelief. And I want you to consider how encouraging not to mention convincing these signs actually were. Let me read them for you again. There's five of them in verses 17 and 18. This is what, these are the signs that will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. That's the first one. Second, they will speak with new tongues. Third, they will take up serpents. And fourth, if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. And then fifth, they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, it is my interpretation these signs were given to these disciples who, because they were being sent out, they became apostles. That word apostle, by definition, is, is someone who was sent out on a mission. That's, that's what an apostle was. And so they were commissioned to take the good news of the gospel. And so as the apostles went out into the world, 
preaching the gospel to every creature, what we find is that in the book of Acts, four of the five of these signs are, are recorded as having been fulfilled in the presence of the apostles. That doesn't mean that the fifth one wasn't. It just means that we have, we have re, uh, lots of evidence in the book of Acts to show us that this is exactly what happened. I'm not going to read all of these references to you. This is what I would encourage you, as I mentioned to the first service, to be Bereans. This is where you go out and you seek the scriptures out on your own to see if those things are true. And what I would say to you is if you go and read and study the book of Acts, you will find that on multiple occasions, just as Jesus had done when he walked on earth, the times when the apostles were casting out demons and, and dispersing them and exorcising people. Let me also point out to you that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon those disciples as they were cloistered there in the upper room, suddenly and miraculously they began to speak in tongues. They began to speak in languages that they had never, ever learned before. And as a result, as they went out in Jerusalem, which was populated by all of these people who had come from all over the world, they were able to enunciate and to clearly communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to people in their own native tongues. And the miraculousness of that was is that these, these disciples had never learned those languages before. Not only that, but if we go on into 1 Corinthians, we know that the apostle Paul addresses the issue of speaking in tongues there. And while there continues to be debate today as to whether the gift of speaking in tongues is still valid, the point that needs to be stressed from what we read here in Mark 16 is that this passage tells us that the supernatural gift of tongues was given to the apostles as they preached the gospel message and it served as a, me as a measure of encouragement to them and it served as a measure of demonstrating the validity of the gospel as they went about preaching it. Now, the real one that some of y'all have been waiting on is the third sign. It talks about taking up serpents. I want to do this. I want you to notice, he says, that not only will they take up serpents, it says next, the, the, the fourth one is, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. Both, I believe, of these miraculous signs point, I believe, not to a specific command, such as to go and pick up and handle snakes as a means of, of demonstrating one's faith. I don't believe that is why Jesus said what he said. I mean, after all, we have to take this verse and we have to also take with it the other parts of Scripture that say this, you shall not tempt the Lord thy God. So rather than these being signs that are telling us to to, to pick up snakes to demonstrate our faith, I believe that these signs actually point to the physical protection of the apostles as they went out preaching the gospel. We get no indication whatsoever that as they went out preaching the gospel that they intentionally went out picking up and handling snakes and serpents or that they intentionally went out drinking poison in order to demonstrate the fact that God's power rested upon them. In fact, Jesus had already told them in Luke chapter 10 something very similar. In Luke 10, verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Then he says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the, that the, the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice. 
because your names are written in heaven. Brothers and sisters, our rejoicing in the things for which we want to point others to is not something that is happening within us. We want to point them to the Savior who has saved us and that our name is written in heaven not because of anything that we have done, but because of everything that He has done. That's the gospel message. Significantly, though, we do have one example of this that we can look at. It comes in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 28, when the apostle Paul was going by and he was picking up some sticks and he was going to put them on a fire. And the fire was so hot that it says that a serpent came out, a viper came out of the sticks and bit him on the hand. And it says that everybody there recognized that it was a poisonous viper and they all watched him, waiting for him to swell up, to get sick and ultimately die. But the Bible tells us that he shook the, the snake off and they all kept looking and they all kept watching and figured out, you know what, he's okay. You, you can be bitten, you can pick up serpents and they will not harm you. It is a... It is the fulfillment of what Jesus had said would happen. Finally, the last sign that Jesus spoke up was the fact that many would be healed from their physical sicknesses as a result of laying on the hands by the apostles. And again, I would just submit to you the book of Acts to read that because you will find multiple examples of that exact thing taking place at the hands of both Peter and Paul throughout that book. So what I believe we are to understand about what Jesus says here is that these were authenticating signs that would accompany those who first went out with the gospel into an unbelieving and into a hostile world. And the last verse of our text confirms that that's exactly what they did. It says that they went out, preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. So in this postscript to Mark's gospel, we have looked at the three appearances of the resurrected Lord that this writer records for us. We've also examined the gospel commission that Jesus gives to his disciples and we have considered the accompanying signs to the gospel proclamation by the apostles. That leads us then to the final thing that I want us to see this morning and it is this. It is the record of ascension and empowerment. Ascension and empowerment. Our text concludes this way. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. All the events that the writer here records for us occurred over the course of several weeks. And what we know from the book of Acts is that Jesus' final words to his, his followers was this. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me both in, Jer in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then with these words, Luke tells us that he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. There are two key things that I want to point out to you about for that. First, as Luke tells us in Acts, Jesus promised the coming of the Holy Spirit. In other words, his physical presence would be replaced by God's spiritual presence. And that spiritual presence would be given to all who would believe in him. But secondly, Jesus, though he ascended, did not go away never to be seen from and heard again. In fact, we learn in verse 19 that he is right now seated at the right hand of the Father, 
reigning in power as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords. And so the resurrected Christ who is now ascended to heaven, he is governing everything and every aspect and every event in this world as the sovereign of all creation. And I want you to think of just how much hope that would have given and provided those to whom he was sending out to commission to, to go out to preach the gospel. Jesus, Jesus didn't send them out in their own power. He sent them out with the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't send them out with their own message to proclaim that they had to come up with. He sent them out with the message of Him who had come and who had lived a perfect, sinless, holy life, who had died on the cross for sinners, had been buried in a tomb to confirm His death, and then had been raised by God as a measure of triumph over death, but also as God's, God's established a fact that His, His ransom payment had been accepted. This was the message that He was to take that they were to take to the world. And then to understand that Jesus is not absent, but rather that he's reigning and, and that he's in control and he's in charge of the universe and everything in it. Just imagine the conviction, but also the empowerment that that would give them as they went to do exactly what Jesus had told them to do. And brothers and sisters, let me say this. Why would the apostles go into the world and face the trouble that they faced and to eventually be, be killed as they were killed for the sake of something that they did not truly believe in. They were taking the testimony of which they were convinced to an unbelieving lost world. And thankfully, they, the Holy Spirit went before them and empowered them to do exactly that. Considering all this, what we come to understand is that this passage, this verses 9 through 20, is that this passage presents us with a group of followers who simply would not believe the message that Jesus was raised from the dead. Their hearts were hardened and their hearts were heavy. But now they have been moved from unbelief to belief and they have been commissioned to carry that same gospel message to the world. And as they go, they do so confident that the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead will accompany them into a world of unbelief knowing that their resurrected Lord is now ascended and is reigning from on high. I like what J.C. Ryle has written. He says, if the disciples were convinced at last who were so unbelieving at first, then how strong is the proof supplied for us that Christ rose indeed. Ryle also goes on to say this. He says, the resurrection of Christ is one of the foundation stones of Christianity. It was the seal of the great work that he came on earth to do. It was the crowning proof that the ransom he paid for sinners was accepted and the atonement for our sin accomplished, the head of him who had been the power of death bruised, and the victory won. Brothers and sisters, therein lies the message of the gospel and the hope of this passage. And it leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. The resurrection of Jesus necessitates our belief in the good news that we must faithfully proclaim and it is the basis of our hope that we will one day be, ra be raised with Jesus to reign with Him. Understanding that this morning, then let me ask you a question. Do you believe the testimony of those who encountered the risen Savior? Do you believe the testimony of this scripture? You understand that the rebuke that Jesus had for his own disciples, he still has for all who will not believe the testimony of his scriptures today. 
In fact, the testimony of the gospel is this. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And he was seen by Cephas and by the twelve. Do you believe that? This is the only message of salvation. There is not another one. The good news of the gospel is the only good news that there really is to tell. You can find salvation in no other message. You can find it in no other name except for the name of Jesus Christ who came, was crucified for your sins, and was raised for your justification. Do you believe that? The message of those who have written this scripture testify to you of his resurrection. Do you believe it? If you believe it, are you telling it? You see, the apostles were sent out to carry that good news of the gospel to a lost world. Are you carrying the good news of the gospel to a lost world? I want you to know, doing so requires more than just, more than just living a good life in front of people. It is good to live a good life in front of people. It does open up opportunities for you to share the gospel with them, but you realize that the proclamation of the gospel requires proclamation. It involves telling others the good news. In fact, the Apostle Peter says it this way, you must always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Are you giving them that defense? The hope of the gospel is tied to the express belief that Jesus Christ died and rose again. Do others know that that is where your hope lies? Finally, are you resting in the promise of Jesus' resurrection? Or is your hope in the fact that Jesus says, because I live, you shall live also? You see, our hope lies not in our circumstances. Our hope lies not in the things that we face in this life. Our hope lies in the fact that Jesus Christ not only died, was buried, and rose again, but that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he now intercedes on our behalf and that his power and that his gospel continue to, to affect our lives every day regardless of what our circumstances may be in this life. Mark tells us that our hope, our hope is in Jesus and in him alone. And that one day we will be accepted into the presence of God, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. So as we come to a close of Mark's gospel today, my prayer for all of you, and my prayer for myself, is that we will continue to consider the testimony of God's holy word, the testimony that has been given to us of the gospel, that we will believe it, and that it will be the basis of our hope both now and for all eternity. Because brothers and sisters, this is truly the word of God and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning.